I created the game. I call it uh, the church name game. All right, let's okay. go ahead and play it. Okay. So the question is, hmm. who has the most common word that appears in the church name? I, I'm going to say, I think it's Presbyterian. Is this right or is this wrong? And I think the common word is... Ah! I was hopeful. Woo woo. Welcome to Bible Theory, homie. Taking the church to the streets, homie. Hey, welcome back to episode two of season five of Bible Theory Podcast. This is your host, the Chicano Knox. And with this today, we're going to go ahead and move forward. Hopefully you caught episode one where I interviewed Dr. Aquila, where we got the roots of Presbyterianism. You know, whether you're in the PCA, OPC or whatever, you should agree with, with most of what you said in terms of Presbyterianism as the nuts and bolts to give you an, intro, an introduction. And if you have not, go ahead and go back to listen to that one, because with this one, one. We're going to go a, a little deeper, uh, a, a little bit more zoomed in type of conversation. If you're considering Presbyterianism, my goal with this season is to encourage you to answer some of those core questions, uh, strange things that Presbyterianism believes and hold to and all that stuff. So hopefully you would join in as a third party and listen in. Type in your comments down below and don't forget to visit the links and resources in the description down below. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Jeremy, welcome. How you doing, bro? Doing good. So glad to be here. I'm saying at the front, I am not a doctor nor a church historian. So we'll talk about some of that stuff. But yeah, that that's not the core of who I am. But I'm excited to be here and have a conversation about the EPC for sure. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah, so uh, I am an associate pastor in the EPC, or otherwise known as a teaching elder in the EPC, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But I work, I've been working in a church for the past 16 years, the same church, and I grew up uh, going to church. Grandfather was a pastor. My aunt was a pastor. My father was is still a pastor. I kind of grew up saying, God, I'm never going to be a pastor, and I vowed that. Man, God had a different plan, and I'm so glad that he did, and I ended up getting called into the ministry ministry, starting in youth ministry. And a lot of what I still do today could be considered next gen ministry. So I'm an associate pastor, but I still work with children and families and young adults. And all of that is a lot of my focus. On the other side of that, I also got involved in doing a lot of online ministry, mainly because of COVID. It threw a lot of churches into figuring out digital everything. And yeah. so I committed before I knew what I was doing. I didn't know how to edit. I didn't know anything. I committed to do 52 weeks of the new city catechism for our church making a video for every single week yeah that's a big thing to say to do when you don't know how to video edit and so i learned quickly and then i started to find that there was just such a need for solid biblical teaching exposition and commentary in the online space and so i started a, a youtube channel alongside of that that really dives into scripture and tries to take current events or things that are happening either in the church or in the world and use them almost as a parable so that i can actually just teach you the bible but i want mm. you to click because you're interested in the thing that's happening in the world. But then I'm going to start breaking down scripture so that you have a deeper understanding. So one example of that, I recently talked at nauseum of uh, the, the time that Tim Ross got up and, and compared Jesus to a stripper. But I didn't go deep into why that's wrong. Instead, right. I used that to say, oh, how, how do we identify false teaching? How does scripture tell us to identify false teaching? And are there any principles we can pull from scripture? So I get you to click with the thing and then I try and maybe do 
little bit of a swap on you and, and give you a little bit of meat so that you okay. can uh, be satisfied. Yeah. You know, learning everything on the fly, on the go, it's, uh, it's hard. You, you have to put in the reps. Yeah. <laughs> you have to put in the time, you know, it takes time. Tell us a little bit more about becoming a, a pastor in the EPC and what was your journey like? Yeah. So my journey actually first starts in the Peace USA. And okay. so when I got called to the, the church to work at, I didn't grow up Presbyterian. I mean, I knew what Presbyterianism was vaguely. I actually attended when I was at, I went to undergrad at Gordon College, the undergrad, most people mm -hmm. recognize Gordon Conwell right next to each other, both founded by AJ Gordon. But when I went up to school there, I actually was attending First Presbyterian Church of Ipswich, which was a Presbyterian church. So I learned a lot about Presbyterianism, but I, I didn't grow up that way. Um, I probably grew up more in a non-denominational context, but the church that I grew up in found its roots in the Plymouth Brethren. So a congregational model, which would look more Baptist than Presbyterian. And so when I applied for a job, I ended up working here at a church that I wasn't sure what Presbyterianism was. And I, when I started going to seminary and started the ordination process, I actually started the ordination process in the PCUSA. And then our church started a discernment process of, man, this, this isn't healthy. There's some major issues and we can talk about those in a little bit. Um, but we actually, our church voted to leave the PCUSA. And then that allowed me, because I was a member of the church and under care of that church in the ordination process to also leave and switch to the EPC. So the way the ordination process works is you first have to be a candidate, which means you have to be a member uh, in good standing at an EPC church. So before you even maybe even begin schooling or anything, like that, you have to first be a, a member of a church in the EPC and you come before the presbytery and they accept you as someone under care. And what that means is you're going to be given a mentor who will walk through the process with you. And that can take anywhere from the time that you're in seminary to longer to finish the ordination process. Um, there are some other ways other than just an MDiv. There's some exceptions that can be made in different cases for lay pastors, but to, to go through the ordination track is to enter into that process. And then at some point, point, once you're done with seminary and classes, you can take the written ordination exams and then you go before the committee on ministry um, or the ministerial committee to really go dive deep into your theology. And that's your, that's where you're getting grilled. And then after that approval by that process, you're brought to the floor of presbytery where you are also asked questions uh, from teaching elders and ruling elders alike about your answers concerning reformed theology, Bible. What are all the categories? I should know this. I've been to enough presbytery meetings. Um, I actually probably had it written down here, uh, but they go through that through church polity, through all of those things. But even before you get to that place of your oral examinations, mm -hmm. you've gone through many, many times with your mentor and with the ministerial committee uh, walking through those things. And if they find errors or issues, like for me, I came from a PCUSA seminary. So they had a lot of questions about <laughs> how I was going to handle the Bible as they rightly should. And so mm -hmm. we had to talk through a lot of those things. Well, what was one of those things where you were like, oh, I moment. Um, well, at a PCUSA seminary, we didn't really nail down on the Westminster Confession of Faith, as my shirt says. It was just one of the confessions. It wasn't okay. the sole subordinate standard that, that we would look at scripture through and, and we would use alongside, of course, underneath, not as authoritative as scripture. So that for me was like, I got to study up on Westminster. I really got to learn this because I wasn't taught that in seminary. And so that was some of the process for me was actually learning Presbyterian theology. Because even 
even though I went to a PCUSA seminary, it was very ecumenical and unfortunately increasingly liberal in its theology. And that caused uh, issues where I, I probably didn't get as good a seminary education as I could have, but I definitely got educated after. Yes. Um, so, so it's, uh, you know, post-seminary retraining. <laughs> Studying for the ordination exams, for sure. Like going back through all of the, the Presbyterian church history, which yeah. I was rough on because part of the ordination exam is being able to identify people, theologians and main people in the Presbyterianism and what they said and what they did. Yeah. And I didn't have a very clear understanding of that. I definitely had to, to work hard on that as well as languages had to refresh on all those things. And so it's kind of like high school. <laughs> a, a little, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> You're like, the, wait, wait. <laughs> and well, and, and in fairness, the, the biggest challenge for me was to to show and prove that my handling of the word of God was at the standard that it should be. Because it's a, that's kind of a hard thing to, like you could get in front of a camera or talk to someone and say the right things, but how do they really know? Right. So that, that was a lot of the conversation. And then I actually had one year of seminary left. So I went back to the PCUSA seminary where I was finishing while I was already in the EPC. And man, that I had some looks from some professors. Uh, really? A, oh yeah. What's the craziest thing that you <laughs> ever encountered at a PCUSA seminary. <sighs> okay. Um, I, I'm not going to say any names or anything like that, sure, but sure. it was, it was a early class. So this student probably wasn't an MDiv student, but they were still enrolled in the seminary where you had to make a credible profession of faith. You had to agree basically that God has revealed his father, son, and Holy spirit, like to mm -hmm, be there. Mm -hmm. And we had to write a paper on the Trinity and, and then we would present some of the things we said in class. And, and one of the students who I don't think was there, like I said, for an MDiv said that they were Unitarian and didn't believe in the Trinity. And there was no pushback from the professor. And I'm just sitting, I'm looking at my classmates. Like, I don't want to be the jerk. Like, I, I like, cause I it was first year. Right. So I'm still learning. And I'm, but I was like, I was taken back by that to just say like, that's okay. Yeah. Like, you're just going to let that slide. And like, well, I didn't write about the Trinity because I don't believe in the Trinity. That seems like a, a cop out. Um, well, what, did, did you have conversations with any of your other students or any other people to like felt similar to you? Yeah. And, and there definitely were those that were more reformed uh, after my, time there, most of the reformed folks moved to better qualified and, and more conservative places to learn. But yeah, there, there were definitely some that were like, what just happened? Mm. And I have no idea. So yeah, it, that that I would say is is the craziest. The second would be the way that the, the conservative professors and, and pastors who were teaching there were starting to be just absolutely pushed to the margins and pushed out. They were solid biblical teachers, but because they didn't fit the framework, you're gone, which is super hypocritical because mm -hmm. there were people there that they allowed that didn't agree on the trinity but yet you're wow. yeah so that's so crazy man Let's go ahead. I did this with Dr. Aquila and we, we did, uh, what's call it? I did some Presbyterian jokes. Oh so boy. So with Here you, I thought, I thought to switch it up a little bit. I created a game. It's only, it's only like a four question part. I could have, I could have done like 20 questions, but with this one, I want to keep it short and sweet. I call it, uh, the church name game. All right, let's okay. go ahead and play it. Okay. This is not ordination. So there's no <laughs> like, uh, you know, sweating on your brow or nothing like that. So the question is hmm. who has the most common word that appears in the church name you know here is multiple choice so the answer is in front of you somewhere i i'm gonna say i think it's presbyterian and i think the word is first okay so his answer is presbyterianism is this right or is this wrong and i think the common word is <laughs> ah! 
I was hopeful. So I might have misunderstood the question, but what I was thinking was I everywhere I see a first Presbyterian church of blank um, okay. in the title versus Baptist could be anything. Methodists feel like they could be anything. I see more commonality in the naming of churches. So maybe I misunderstood. But what is the answer? Now I'm intrigued. The answer is B. Baptist. Baptist. That it's was the my most second. common yeah. name, common word that appears in, in, in church's names. Ah, so that word appears. That's where I was thinking any word, but that makes more oh, sense. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. All right. Second one. The most common word in church names, excluding Ooh. denominational name, like the first question. Mm -hmm. So is it A, victory, like victory assemblies, yeah. victory church, victory uh, Christian community, or is it B, worship, worship community center or whatever, or C, I had to throw this one in there, Inglesia, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> or, or D, Christ community church, Christ assemblies, or is it E, other? I'm going to sound like a, a beating in the same drum, but I'm going to say D because I think it can either be the first in the church's name, like Christ Church of blank or the Church of Christ. So I think it could be at the beginning or the end. So I'm going to go with D. All right. And the answer is D. Ah, there we go. That's actually a good thing. Jesus Christ front and center in most church names. We'll take that. It's a pretty common name, actually, for a church. Next question. Among Catholics, Episcopalians, and Lutherans, which apostle has more churches named after them? Is it A, Paul the Apostle, B, John the Apostle, C, Peter the Apostle, D, James the Apostle, or E, other? Hmm. I, I think it's B, but I might be swayed because there's also hospitals named St. John's and other things like that. But mm -hmm. I'm going to go with B. And the answer is... Hey, right. There we go. Man, you're getting a passing grade so far. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. All right, one more. Mountains and hills are common names for churches. Which one has the most? Is it A, Mount Calvary, or B, Pleasant Hill, or C, Mars Hill, or D, Mount Zion, or E, other? I don't think it's Mars Hill, even though it kind of fits. I, I think my second guess is go I'm going to go with D, Mount Zion. I think there's a lot of Mount Zions out there. All right, let's go ahead and see. Is he right? Right. Answer is right. Hey, let's go. Oh, nice. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> nice one, man. You got you got them all, man. You get a passing grade. I give you an A minus. I'll take it. I'll take it. Yes! Baptist was my second choice, but I was hoping it was Presbyterian. So. Because I'm talking to you and you are ordained in the EPC, kind of walk, kind of walk us through what is the EPC. Sure. Where did it come from? You know, just give us the intro of you know the existence of it. Because there's many people out here who don't know that don't yeah. know about the EPC and that it actually exists. Yeah. And, and oftentimes when I say I'm Presbyterian, people ask, wait, are you PCA? And I say, no, they're like, oh, you're the other one. I'm like, no, 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 there's others. There's <laughs> others. And so basically, and for those that are listening, if you've not heard, if you haven't gone back and listened to the first episode, you really need to do that. Cause I'm not, I, like I said, I'm not a historian. Mm -hmm. I'll give you big snapshots. And I mentioned to you in our text back and forth that I'm actually working. This forced me to actually go and work on a video <laughs> myself to be like, Hey, I really should explain this better for mm -hmm. my, my audience on my YouTube channel. Um, so I'm actually working on that. But 
but here's a 30,000 foot view. It's starting similar to the PCA in many regards because there was a mainline Presbyterian church. Well, kind of there were two, the UPCUSA and the PCUS. And so you had these two mainline that eventually combined in 1983. But before they combined, PCA decided to leave, right? And and form themselves in what, 1973 or something? Yeah. Yeah. And and the EPC did its did similar in 1981. So we're eight years behind you guys. And it was over basically a few different things, but mainly this push of modernism and liberal theology into the forefront, which is what had been seen already by the PCA, particularly remind me if I'm wrong, it's mostly PCA mostly left over women's ordination to begin, but there was lots of other things there as well. And actually the EPC left over women's ordination also, but for a little bit different flavor. And and we'll get to that because there was also this modernization, this growing liberalization where some congregations began to embrace very liberal theology and theology that we would say is outside the bounds of orthodoxy, Mm. is outside the bounds of what even the confessions that that would be held at that time, not just Westminster, but the confessions together. And, And so that also then showed its colors, so to speak, in the social and cultural influences of the day as the broader cultural changes began to happen in that time, in the late 20th century, uh, the sexual revolution, questioning traditional moral values, all of those things had its impact on the PCUSA. And um, it still has its impact today in our denominations. You feel that in the PCA, you feel that in the EPC. The problem was it was starting to give way to those things. And so in actually to rewind before 1981, when we left 1970, a movement began, which I'm actually probably sure some of the PCA folks were a part of, but I, I don't know for sure, called Concerned Presbyterian. And it was a movement which eventually grew into forming of the EPC. And so it took 11 years of that movement of the folks in the mainline denomination who are like, I'm not comfortable with where this theology is going. What should we do about it? And so the EPC branched off and left. And and one of the main reasons, there's a lot of reasons, but again, 30,000 foot, one of the main reasons is in the PCUSA Book of Order, it's mandated that you must have at least one female elder. And so- must. You must. It became an essential. Mm. It became an essential of the church and that became a a real big problem and it actually changed for many churches how they viewed elders or even pushed a a poor view of elders as slot filling. Like we need people to fill the role of elder, not asking the question, who is qualified and mature and ready to lead in our congregation? Instead it became, we need another. So Mm. we got to go find one. Even if Mm. they're not ready, we're just going to put someone in that role is what it turned into. And our church felt the brunt of that. And that was also part of the reason for us. I don't think it was at the core why our specific church left. We left in 2012 and that became over the even further sexual revolution type stuff. But we would agree now, our elders would agree now looking back on that, it shouldn't be a must. It can't be a must. Again, if you're going by the scriptural standards, which I think is debate on, and that's where we can talk more, but that gives you the 30,000 foot view of why the EPC left. And so then the question, after that is what is the EPC, right? right? So that that's some of the why. And I'll just read the mission statement because I think it encapsulates it really well. And it just says the EPC exists to carry out the great commission of Jesus as a denomination of Presbyterian, reformed, evangelical, and missional congregations. So those are our distinctives. And of that, we, we hold 
hold to really two things that would define us is the Westminster Confession of Faith as our sole subordinate standard. So it's the sole standard under scripture and our seven essentials that we would say that every ord ordination, both elder and uh, ruling elder and teaching elder have to say they take these without exception. And the seven are, again, 30,000 foot. You can go read them for yourself. But the first three are all about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the the, the unity in, in the Trinity mm -hmm. and the divinity of Christ, the divinity of the Father, the divinity, all of that contained. Then it talks about sinners who need salvation and that it's a work of grace alone through faith alone. It's a work of God, not of ourselves. Mm -hmm. The true church is made up of the elect. It's a visible and invisible church. Mm -hmm. The Christ will return personally, visibly, and bodily, but there's room for interpretation in the EPC, but that's the distinctive. And then lastly, uh, that we must live out the command to proclaim the gospel to all nations. So, so it's kind of like the Apostles' Creed, a little bit formula? A little structure. bit, correct. Mm -hmm. Just given in seven statements with scriptural proofs. Okay. And, and those that have to be taken without exception. You can become a pastor in the EPC or a ruling elder in the EPC and take exception to something in Westminster. You just have to defend it orally on the floor. And usually the only exceptions that are taken are the wording over uh, the Sabbath. We'll go ahead and talk about the Sabbath in a different interview, but trust me, <laughs> you want to come back from that one. You know, let's come down in elevation. Sure. And let's see how how far we can present this in, in a great way so people could see, okay? Mm -hmm. What is the difference, you think, between the EPC and the PC, um, PCA? Because the way you describe becoming a pastor is very similar yep. to the PCA structure of becoming a pastor. There might be a couple caveats here and there, but for the, for the most part, it sounds, it sounds similar. Um between the PCA and the EPC, what are the main bullet point differences? If you have any, you can yeah. just run through those for us. Well, I think it all it shows in the motto of the EPC, the motto of the EPC. I read the mission statement, but the motto is in the essentials, unity in non-essentials, liberty and all things, charity. So those seven essentials that I, that I summarized are mm -hmm. what we must hold in unity. If you find yourself outside of those, you can no longer consider yourself. Actually, I would say if you probably don't agree with any any of those seven, you're probably outside of biblical orthodoxy to begin with, let alone yeah. e EPC. That was kind of the goal. And so that sets the, the hard fence around what is essential. That means in our denomination, there can be people and there are congregations that would be continuous, continuationist, sorry, or cessationist. There will be congregations that have different end times views. There'll mm -hmm. be congregations that have different perspectives on women's ordination. Um, there'll be some presbyteries that have different perspective on women's ordination. So there are equally people in the denomination that hold to eldership is only for men looking at scripture. I think mm -hmm. there's a strong case for that. I usually kind of tend that way in my own personal beliefs, but I also see some of the other side of the argument as well. And so we see that as a non-essential issue, as long as it doesn't infringe upon what Westminster helps us to understand scripture by and those seven essentials. So in terms of PCA, I, I'm mm -hmm. not as familiar of the polity in the PCA or the specifics. I mean, that's probably the biggest difference is uh, women's ordination. I would also say that sometimes 
in the EPC, we're more reformed in name, mm-hmm. not necessarily in practice. And what I right. what I what I mean by that is, I think if you asked a lot of EPC folks who haven't been in the EPC very long, they might not even know what it means to be reformed. Whereas in the PCA, I feel like that's a, a stronger staple of what you talk about, or at least from the folks that I know who are in the PCA. You know, I think one of the differences going back to the to the election of elders, I think the PCA would be 100 percent more heavy on the, you know, election of only male, male leadership, elders must be men and will be men and has been men going forward, backwards, anywhere in church history, the PCA would say in general, this is a male only office. So I think that would probably be one of the biggest difference. But I would absolutely agree. And I think that's the main distinctive because polity wise, other than that, and in terms of practice, there's a lot of similarity. Of course, I think there's um, because of where we find our unity in the essentials and all things charity and, and showing liberty. I think there's more diversity of the way churches look in the EPC. And that isn't always a good thing. But I, I would say that, that that's what we see. Right. Because I, I, I'm trying to understand it. And I think I understand what you're trying to say is that there's more flexibility ability within the the EPC's approach to the form of government and there's more flexibility in in the internal structures of that based on the liberty right because that's one of the foundations I think what you're trying to say is that majoring on the majors and yeah and, and minoring on the minors right so that's allows you to have major flexibilities within the forms of government where I think the mm-hmm. PCA would say the essential would be you know that male elders will be male. But if you were to go to EPC church or a PCA church, I think a lot of it will be very, it's the same. I think it's the same ice cream, slightly different flavor. Let's talk about the um, EPC because you're, 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 General Assembly is um, Presbyterian General Assembly, right? It's coming up in a couple of weeks here at the end of the month, right? And so within the next five years or 10 years, where do you think the EPC is going? Because Mm. I looked at some of the numbers and it looks like the church in terms of church planting has grown in the past, what, 20 years. It just skyrocketed. Yes. You know, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, church movements and preaching and missionary stuff and all that stuff. In your opinion, what are some of the battles that you know your denomination the epc is struggling with that is really critical that that the gospel would triumph that would determine where it might go i guess it's great that you mentioned the general assembly because they mark this general assembly coming up in 2023 uh will be at cherry hill in colorado so out your way it's emphasizing it's focusing on our our five main uh focuses of ministry in the epc that have been part of the epc from its its conception. And, and those are mobilization, transformation, effective biblical leadership, and global movement. Sorry, four. I said five. And it's those four things that are the markers by which they're trying to, to push. So when we're talking multiplication, we're talking church planting. I know our, our presbytery alone um, has multiple church plants and our presbytery is the geographically smallest of all the presbyteries, I think. But every church is being pushed and encouraged, not forced, but encouraged 
encouraged in the EPC to either be a parent, a partner, or a patron church of a church plant. So for example, there's a church plant about 25, 30 minutes away from our church who we regularly serve, we send volunteers to. Uh, we're getting ready here at the end of June to go and, and remodel some of their upstairs in the building that they have. Mm -hmm. Now, we, we're an encouragement to them. There's, there's actually even a church plant we have right now happening in Cleveland, Bridge City Church. That's a joint church plant between a EPC church and an eco church, Evangelical Covenant Order, uh, where it's a it's a commissioned lay pastor who is leading that and great things are happening. So I think finding good gospel partnerships to make church planting essential because people are going to say, don't we have enough churches? Not until, not until everyone has been discipled and we're trying to disciple everyone in every pocket. And my church is a 152 year old church. Certain people are not going to walk into a 152 year old church. Right. Whereas they might walk into a church plant that started in a coffee shop or started in someone's home. So uh, church planting has been the main focus, I should say, I think. But that's also been coupled with transformation, this idea of church health and revitalization. We have all these old churches in need of revitalization, as well as effective biblical leadership, discipleship is, is what I would categorize that as. And then global movement, uh, a missional movement out from where we are. So I don't know where the EPC will be in the next 10 years, but I do know that in the next 10 years, there will be more churches planted because that's been our focus. That's where we put our mission money. And a lot of our churches put their resources into that, trying to build up church leaders. We have a very strong process that you have to go through to be a church planter. Yeah. It doesn't, you don't just get to say like, I want to plant a church. It's like, no, no, no. There's a yeah. very thorough process as I'm sure there is in the e and the PCA. That, that would be the, again, some of the, the big things. And I'm sure there's things that I'm missing but I also know some of the battles that you guys are facing in the PCA. We're going to be, those are on our doorstep too. Yeah, the, and the, the tide is rising and every church door is about to get wet. <laughs> expect the formation of gigantic tsunamis that's a good way to say it we have position papers on sexuality and all those things but position papers only go so far when yeah, churches are we had them <laughs> we yeah. have them yeah <laughs> I'm just telling you, man, get ready. Well, Here's that was one question. of the questions to, to revisit back. Uh -huh. That was one of the questions I got in my ordination exam is what would I do with a transgender student if they came on a youth retreat? And what would be my process? How would I handle that? And little do they know that much of our ministry deals with working with kids who are LGBTQ, who are, are stuck in that framework and not sure even how to get out. And I'll, I'll give the first part of my answer. Basically, I said the first step I would do is sit down with my session because I know who's in the room and I'm not making this decision by myself. And then we walk through how we would communicate that understanding. Basically at the front, we communicate that to all the folks who are part of our ministry of here's what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. And and here's where we're clear. We're going to love you through it. But these are our standards. This is what we ask of you. And in return, if you can follow these, we're going to continue to love you and pour into you. So, um, and call you to follow Christ, not your own desires. out there that say, you know, many hmm. churches and large denominations are actually declining. Yeah. And I do have a video coming out on that in response to an NPR article that talks about it. it you know, is this really a good thing that most of these older denomination churches um, are declining? Or is that, you know, is that a bad thing in your opinion? Why or why not? Well, I, I think it's sad. I think we can all agree that it's a sad thing that decline is happening. It, it saddens me because even if I went to the PCUSA 
documents. If they lived out what their documents say, they'd be a solid denomination. The problem is they don't live out what their documents say. And so um, I think many churches, both conservative and liberal, but we see it more so in the in the liberal denominations because what ends up happening when you question the authority of scripture, when scripture is not the sole standard of everything, and yes, you have confessions and creeds that help you understand scripture, all of a sudden now you put scripture on the table to question and, and think about. Now you're questioning everything. That's the quick path to saying, oh, I don't believe in anything. And so if you remember back to the Ligonier study that was done, some of the things as they they interviewed evangelicals about what they believed and like it, putrid numbers of what they believe about the divinity of Christ, let right. alone the like, Trinity. The, yeah. 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 Like, and, and so it's sad. I don't know that it is bad because it gets back to an understanding of, I would look at churches that don't hold to the authority of scripture and the essentials of biblical orthodoxy aren't churches. I, I don't think they fit into the framework of what would be considered a biblical church. And some might even look at my church that you have women elders. You wouldn't be a biblical church. And we can talk about that. That's fair. What's for- wrong with you people? Yeah. <laughs> oh, some good old RC is always, <laughs> always appreciated. And, and so I think that I don't know that it's bad thing. All I do know is none of it surprises God. None of it is been, oh no, now what? Instead, I think it shows what ends up happening when you don't catechize your kids. I think it shows what happens when you don't teach the Bible well and you do motivational sermons. I think the way that the pulpit and worship goes on a Sunday morning, so goes the denomination and so goes the church. Uh, One of my favorite books, I had it here because I knew I would bring it up, is Christ-Centered Worship by Brian Chappell. This was revolutionary for our elders in understanding how do we worship and why do we worship? And we reordered our entire worship around Isaiah chapter six and the call of Isaiah and patterning our worship, uh, not necessarily full regulative principle. Our folks wouldn't even know what that means, but I know what that means. <laughs> but I think for whether this is good or bad, I don't know that it's bad per se, but it is sad. You know, a a lot of young people would say, well, this is the reason why this is the real issue that you Presbyterians don't talk about or won't confess or won't even address. Why are there so many denominations in the first place? Because if you didn't have denominations, there'll be no decline of denominations. And the reason why they're declining is because we shouldn't have them. Well, a little tongue in cheek to begin, if other denominations would be more like Peter when Paul brought his issues of circumcision to the floor and would confess and repent of some of the things that they're involved with, we would have less denominations. And and I don't mean that harshly, but it sounds harsh, but that's the truth is sometimes there is needed to be division if we're not teaching the same gospel. And I, I think that's the, the step one is if you're saying there's no de- denominations, are you saying then that Christians and Mormons and Jehovah's Witness have to all worship in the same place? Like like if you take it to that extreme, extreme and if, if you're someone there, then you, no, you're not a Christian because you're just a Unitarian Universalist where all the paths lead because Christians and Mormons and Jehovah's Witness don't believe in the same God um, because they reject the Trinity. Both 
both mm-hmm. of them. And, and, and so I think there are things we have to divide over because scripture tells us to divide over. First uh, Corinthians five tells us to not even be in the presence of one who is sexually immoral. And, and, and so if we're going to be in a denomination with those that would call the things that God calls an abomination good, how does that work? So I think that scripture can teach us where to have the guardrails and lines. Is it a good thing? Not necessarily. I think it is biblical. I mean, this is why the the church was established to begin with, and it wasn't just Judaism 1.2. It's a whole new thing. Yeah. And and that's why what almost all of the letters in the New Testament are about what divisions in the church trying to correct those. So I think I think denominations are unfortunately inevitable um, because there is no such thing as perfect interpretation, perfect hermeneutic, perfect anything. Um, we can joke and say Presbyterians are as close as it gets. But <laughs> again, I, I think that that is how I guess the question would be, how do we have John 17 type unity even in the midst of denominational difference? And that's the pushback I would have is say, how can we disagree on the minor things and still have brotherly love and care for one another? Even where I would partner arm in arm gladly with a Baptist, a Reformed Baptist. I would I would go to battle uh, for the gospel alongside those brothers and sisters in Christ. But I'm going to probably not go to battle with even colleagues and friends that I had from seminary who were in the PCUSA who wholeheartedly adopted that worldview, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah I think that's a very good point. You know, there is, there is need for vision, you know, the word of God, the truth will divide, you know, and God's word divides anyways. And, you know, in terms of right and wrong and division and all that stuff, you know, Jesus divides more people in the world in a sense than, than he, he unites. Like his whole goal is to divide his real people to himself, Mm -hmm. to bring them to himself. So that means he has to divide them and bring them to himself. So there is a division there. Um, I think there's a healthy way of doing that. Sure. You know, there's a healthy way of leading your church, you know, don't just get up and leave. We'll talk about that in another episode as well. But thank you for for your opinion there. That was great. And I think the big thing is division over theology, Mm -hmm. not over preference. If we divide over preference, meaning I like this style of music versus that style of music, or I like this style of whatever, or this thing, or I like this program. Like, I don't think we should find division over that. That's petty, but over theology that that's well thought out. The problem is I think most people don't know theology because they're not being taught from the pulpit, let alone doing the study on their own. Right. You know, in your opinion, why are Presbyterians sometimes are seen as non-missional on a large scale? And if and if some of that is true, how can that be changed? Yeah, I think it's because of the doctrines of grace that we hold to. I think it's because of the understanding of election and predestination that we would hold to that, that people want to throw those words out of scripture, even though they're all biblical. They don't want to deal with election. They don't want to deal with predestination. And so they un I think they draw that conclusion based on a misunderstanding of predestination, a misunderstanding of election. And they say, well, if if God has ordered everything from the beginning of time, then we don't even need to evangelize. That must be what your perspective is. And I say, well, that's not what Jesus said. So I'm going to go with Jesus on being sent ones who are, who are ministers of the gospel. Um, that's definitely not how Paul lived. That's not how the apostles lived. That's not how the early church began. The church itself, the, the gathering, the ecclesia has to be missional. Uh, it just has to be. So the problem becomes, I think this is a North American problem as much as it is a Presbyterian 
problem. Uh, I'll take the blame for our church maybe not being great at it, but I also think it's it's a anytime there's a fluent comfort and wealth missions is I want to send money to missions, but I don't want to do it myself. So if I think you rewind in church history to the 50s and 60s when you see churches exploding, growing to crazy numbers, average churches that are now declined to a few hundred members, mine have been one, one of those. We used to be a, around 2,500 members in the late 90s because we grew in those 50s, 60s time. What happened is the professionalization of ministry. I think the professionalization, paying people to do the ministry is what actually actually long-term has hurt the missional nature of the church because they'd rather say, oh, we can hire someone to do that. We'll hire a pastor of missions to go do missions work or we'll, we'll send the youth group and we'll pay them or whatever it might be as opposed to it being this, the priesthood of all believers and an understanding that, no, this is the call to every believer to go be one who loves others in such a way that they know Christ, they share the gospel and that they point people to the truth. And that's not happening often in our churches. So our, our push as the EPC has been around equipping Ephesians 4.12, I think mm-hmm. is a hugely important verse for every pastor and elder to know. And that's our role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That it's not just for me, Jeremy Collins, to go and, and preach the gospel, though I should, but it's better. And my role as a teacher and an elder is to equip others to go do that ministry. And that's missional work. So we're equipping people to have gospel conversations by using the three circles model, but you can use any model you want. You can go um, with whatever system, but we're trying to give people a tool that they can use to have gospel conversations. Because while I'm a pastor and I'm on YouTube, there are certain places I can never go. I can never walk into one of my congregation uh, members' place of business and just start preaching the gospel. I can't go there, but they go there every day and they can live the gospel there every day. So it's that shift of taking it from a macro missions is a thing we do globally, which we do to missions is a thing I do with my neighbors. Um, and if anyone wants to be super convicted about this, as I have been, go read the book. Um, the gospel comes with a house key by Rosaria mm-hmm. Butterfield. Mm-hmm. Great book. And you're going to, you're going to quickly change how your family approaches gospel ministry as mine has. We've bought a picnic table. We're trying to do lunches and dinners yep. with, with neighbors outside, stuff like that. To just I know. Yeah, barbecue. Just, for me, it's carne asadas and tacos. I, hey, I I will <laughs> gladly fly to Colorado and have some tacos with you, my friend. Hey, you're flying to Colorado soon. So I know, is- a few weeks. <laughs> Yes, sir. All right, let's go. Let's go ahead and close it up. Any closing thoughts, closing arguments, any highlights you want to remind or bring up to the audience? Ultimately, I I would say just this is kind of where we just were. I think is super helpful for people to know and hear again is that we all are called to this missional life. This isn't a thing your pastor does. This isn't a thing your elders do. And I will tell you, if you emailed or called your pastor or your elders this week and said, hey, I want to sit down. I would love to get coffee and talk more about missions. Every single one of them is going to jump at that chance to talk more about how your congregation can be more missional in the community that they're in. I would encourage you to consider doing that because most often the communications elders and pastors get are, are not fun. <laughs> they're, they're, they're hard. Yeah. So yeah. So take that opportunity. And if something has been put on your heart by God to, to serve a community, one of the things we're looking at in our, our area, uh, Western Pennsylvania, where I am North of Pittsburgh per capita is like the second oldest area in the country behind some places in Florida, mm. because people grow up here, they're steel miners, they're coal miners, and then they never leave. So people just live 
lived their whole life here. The retirement home business around here is booming. And so we're thinking, hey, everyone's thinking about next generation, which is important. How can we serve the last third of life generation better? That's an area that we found in our community is underserved. And I'm guessing it's underserved in everyone's community because people forget about old folks yeah. too quickly. So that would be my encouragement. But also if you've enjoyed this conversation, shameless plug, follow me on YouTube. Come find me. Uh, just Jeremy Collins, type it into YouTube. You'll find me. And it, I, I do try to do a lot of live streams, love to have conversation. Um, and if you ever disagree, you're allowed to push back and we can have fun with that. All right. So with that, let's go ahead and close out. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in to episode two. Watch out for the next episode because we're going to continue this conversation about Presbyterianism. We're going to be asking, poking, probing, you know, looking, researching, you know, all that stuff. So hopefully you join me next time on Bible Theory as we continue this awesome research. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your way out and leave a comment. Let me know uh, what question you like. You know, what are your thoughts about some of the conversation? here so i'd love to hear your feedback on that god bless grace and peace